Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 271 recap on Twitter Spaces. Today, we're going to be discussing remotely controlling lightning nodes using a hardware signing device, some privacy-focused lightning research involving dynamically splitting lightning payments, a proposal to improve lightning liquidity using something called side pools, and we'll be covering the long-awaited LND 017.0 release. We're joined by two special guests this week. We have Dave Harding and Heis Van Dam. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, funding Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin stuff. Dave? Hi, I'm Dave. I uh, help write the Optech newsletter, and I am co-author of the upcoming third edition of Mastering Bitcoin. Dave, I think the people want to know, when, when do you think it'll be out? Uh, we're looking at uh, early December, probably at the latest, so it could be out around Thanksgiving, or the U.S. Thanksgiving at least. Um, but yeah, early December. Um, if you want to read it, you can actually read the entire thing right now online on O'Reilly's website. It's not the finished edition, but it's really close right now. So if you're really eager, go get it right there. Awesome. Heiss? Yes, so I'm uh, currently finishing my PhD and my research is on Lightning Network and its privacy properties. Excellent. Well, thank you, Heiss and Dave, for joining us this week. We'll go through the newsletter sequentially. This is 271. The first news item this week is titled Secure Remote Control of Lightning Nodes. And this is a proposal from TBAST, who proposed a blip which is a Bitcoin Lightning improvement proposal that specifies how a user could potentially control their Lightning node remotely using Bolt 8, which is the encrypted and authenticated transport spec for Lightning, um, in addition to this blip to be able to control certain aspects of their Lightning node. And from, from the blip, um, he outlines three different components that would be involved with this sort of control. One would be the user's lightning node running on a remote server. The second component would be a hardware device, uh, a secure hardware device that would have a trusted display. So there's, some, uh, there's, there's a display requirement. And he gave an example of one I think that he's working on or toying with, which is the Ledger Nano S. And then the third component would be a companion app, which is an untrusted application that would be used to communicate with the hardware device and the lightning node and sort of glues those two together. Um, I think he also outlined a couple competing ways in which this is done currently. One is directly connecting to the node using something like SSH and then calling the local RPCs or exposing the node's RPCs over the internet and then having some form of authentication. Both of these mechanisms that people use are potentially dangerous if the machine that you're performing those tasks on is compromised. And so he's come up with this alternate way of communicating with Lightning nodes. It's a, essentially a pared down version of, of some things that we've talked about previously with the Commando plugin for Core Lightning. Rich or Dave or Heist, do you guys have any comments on this? Yeah, I, I had a question slash comment. Uh, so I think we're all aware of the VLS project where 
people are trying to implement a uh, hardware security module that has policies that it can enforce locally to decide when it signs or not. Would I be right to uh, assume that this would sort of plug into um, or provide rails for a user that runs a VLS on their end. So you could sort of have this communication channel open to your VLS, use uh, Paratonnerre, the blip that uh, Bastien uh, proposes to communicate with your Lightning node, but then run VLS on the other side to automate some of the sign-offs. But, uh, or um, Dave, you, you've read uh, the blip probably more carefully because you wrote up this description. Do you have an idea how that would interact? Um, first of all, I think it's a really good point, and that should probably be raised in the discussion, how it would interact with VLS, because it is a similar project doing similar things uh, somewhat. Um, you know, I really got the impression that uh, this is for somebody who's going to be using LN somewhat infrequently, uh, but also for high value. Like if you're using LN for low value payments, it's okay to have that in a somewhat untrusted environment, like on your phone uh, or on your desktop computer. Um, but if you're going to occasionally make large payments with LN, you might have a separate channel for that. For example, if you're going to do payroll from LN, uh, you might be handling you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, and you're going to want each one of those payments to be specifically authorized by your hardware device. So I, I think maybe it's kind of separate from VLS because VLS is something you might want to use again, for like your, your daily payments uh, and to keep them going. Actually, no, now that you say that, that sounds like that's a good combination. You might have VLS run on a channel with high value that allows you to use it for daily payments, allows you to set a daily payment restriction, um, and then use your hardware signing device to authorize large payments, like something like payroll. So yeah, like I said, that needs to be brought up in the discussion uh, that these things should be working together. I was I was able to see uh, some some tweets on this topic, and Tbas responded to somebody bringing up the VLS topic, and had said, um, "Yes, I know about VLS. We actually worked on these issues long before VLS existed." And he links to a blog post on the topic, and he says, uh, "But what I'm proposing in this blip is a completely separate project. It really has nothing to do with what VLS does." And then he goes on to comment. Well, maybe what I'm suggesting could also be implemented inside VLS, but I find it interesting only when you have a hardware trusted display, which is a different model from the type of hardware devices that VLS targets. Right. So I think one of the things that VLS could automate is um, VLS can recognize when you're only forwarding payments and can sign off on those. So if you um, force your channel to only be signed off on a hardware device, one of the problems that you would have is that the channel wouldn't be able to forward anymore because uh, without you actually monitoring the hardware device, you, you wouldn't be there to physically sign off and uh, instruct your hardware device to accept a HTLC and forwarded. So I, th I think you could potentially have two different authenticated devices. The VLS that, for example, takes care of the, the forwarding and then uh, this other device that has a display 
that you would use to authorize larger payments. But I'm I'm certainly a few steps further removed from this whole thing than Bastien. I'm sure, uh, or I don't know how how likely that would be able to work. So eh, I don't know. Thinking out in the blue here. I don't think what TPASS is proposing is uh, for the keys to actually be stored on the hardware signing device. I think he's suggesting that the public key from the hardware signing device is put into your Ellen node uh, as an authentication method. So you sign a message to your Ellen node telling it what to do. So some commands on the Ellen node are uh, can be remotely run uh using a message signed by your hardware signing device um so the note itself could continue to do forwarding you know it could have a policy and that would be similar to vls in that sense that the node would have a policy that says i can forward payments on my own but if the user wants to send a payment uh one of the ways they can do that is by signing a message using the display on their hardware signing device and then sending that using a bolt eight uh message to the um to the node and the node will say oh well now i will send a payment authorized by the user so again it's not a security you could still forward payments is all i'm saying Uh uh-huh that's cool but then i don't understand how it would improve security against hacking because if your software enforces the policy locally, once someone gains access to your device, they could also just uh, circumvent other instructions that the software is enforcing, right? So if the key is on, on your full node, sorry, on your lightning node and can forward and the hardware device is not involved in all of the forwarding events, the key is still there if the device gets hacked. Uh, sorry, the node gets hacked. So what I think uh, TBAS is envisioning is that you have a secure piece of hardware, let's say a dedicated computer for your LN node, um, and maybe it's headless. So the only way you can access it is by using another device. And that device that you use to access it might not be secure. So, you know, I might have a very secure LN node running on a Raspberry Pi here in my office. Uh, and I also have my desktop, and I use my desktop to access all sorts of random stuff on the internet, so it's more likely to get hacked. Uh, and right now, the only way I could issue a command to my LN node would, buy, would be by SSHing into the headless uh, box running L, uh, the LN node, or by some other mechanism that's vulnerable to compromise. Uh, whereas what TPASS imagines is that uh, I would have a hardware signing device, uh, also my office, and when I wanted to issue a payment, I would use that. I would connect it to the uh, headless LLM box, and I would sign a message saying, pay merch $100, you know, or something like that. And so, again, my, my desktop computer would not be involved in the security loop. Right. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Thanks for clarifying. We contrasted a bit with VLS, and I think another comparison is the commando plugin for Core Lightning. Rusty from the Core Lightning team commented on the, the blip uh, thread and mentioned it's like a reduced subset of commando. And TBAST also mentions that comparison to commando in that it has a, sim- a lot of similarities. But the part that he finds interesting is having all of Bolt 8 inside 
the hardware device so that each outgoing and incoming message is displayed on the trusted hardware display. And it doesn't have the exact same goals as Commando, essentially a pared down set of commands that involve the spending of some Bitcoin, because that's what really you want to secure as much as possible. Any other comments on this news item team? All right. The next news item from the newsletter is payment splitting and switching. And Ice, you posted on the Lightning Dev mailing list a post titled Payment Splitting and Switching and its Impact on Balanced Discovery Attacks. Maybe one one yes. place to start is maybe for the audience, what is a balanced discovery attack? Well, a balanced discovery attack is also known as probing. But uh, uh, I tend to use the term balanced discovery attack. Um, it's a way of uh, discovering the balance uh, of a channel that you yourself or the attacker isn't part of. Um, and you do that by sending uh, payments that use a random uh, payment hash. Um, so the payment will fail. Uh, because of it will fail anyway because of the random payment hash that you are using. Uh, but now, if you use uh, different amounts, then you can uh, discern by error messages whether it failed because of the uh, payment hash that the receiver doesn't recognize, or because it failed of uh, a channel on the route to the receiver. Uh, that doesn't have enough liquidity to route the payment. And you can use that information um, uh, to discern the the exact balance of a channel. And this is something um, that um, I've been doing research on for quite some time already. Um, And um, yes, so it's a privacy risk for Lightning Network in general. So I was trying to find a, a mitigation, and um, I actually built on an idea of Siemen that he posted years ago already, um, because the whole idea of um, probing or balanced discovery attack hinges on a Lightning Network being a source-based routing, right? So the uh, sender determines the exact route that the um, payment will take, and um, that makes it possible for him to target a specific channel that he wants to know the balance of. Uh, and um, so a while ago, um, Siemen posted the idea of intermediate payment splitting, um, and um, th- there's, there was already something like intermediate, intermediary payment splitting called a link multipart payment, where in link multipart payment, you use two parallel channels. Um, Siemen floated the idea of using, actually in his idea, um, using rendezvous routing to find another route to the next hop, to the next node. Um, an alternative route via one or more intermediary hops. And then you can split the payment uh, over those alternative routes that you can find. Um, and I found that an, uh, 
way back. I thought that's an interesting idea. So I discussed it with him via email and also with uh, Christian Decker. And um, I made a plugin that is actually a proof of concept, nothing more. Please don't use it for anything. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't use rendezvous routing, obviously. But it's more a combination of the idea of link multi-part payment uh, mixed together with uh, just-in-time routing from uh, an AP card. So uh, just to recap and uh, see that I understood it correctly, basically when you forward a payment in a multi-part, sorry, multi-hop um, uh, payment attempt, uh, yeah. you know what the next recipient in the chain of hops is going to be. Exactly. So let's yeah. say I'm, I'm Alice, uh, the payment, sorry, I'm Bob. The payment goes from Alice through me, Bob, to Carol, to Dave. I know that Carol is the next recipient along the line, but obviously I cannot know that the ultimate recipient is Dave. So what I do is I only split my forwarding attempt from Bob to Carol into multiple uh, subparts and it is sort of reassembled at Carol's side again and then Carol has still her onion to unpack and to forward to Dave but she again doesn't know whether Dave is the ultimate recipient or there's more recipients after that but for every step basically the one forwarder can uh, seek alternative routes and just for that one hop uh, try to get the money to the next recipient in a different way. Yes, and that's correct. And what's important to note there is that, so Bob is the one splitting up the payment and Carol is the one that reassembles it. <laughs> and Bob uses just the original onion he receives, um, but he will commit to an HTLC that carries an amount that's less than the intended amount. And that's, that's what triggers Carol if she also supports uh, payment splitting, that's what triggers Carol to uh, wait for a little while longer to receive uh, uh, the uh, the rest of the amount via an alternative route. And you could see that happening, like maybe she needs to wait 30 seconds or 60 seconds. In other uh, multi-part payment proposals, there's also a waiting time for reassembling everything. So uh, yeah, but I, that, that's something that we should decide on at a later point. Right, that's that's pretty cool because Carol knows, wait, I'm supposed to send to Dave a larger amount than what I'm receiving here on Bob. Yeah, exactly. Bob. Uh, channel right now, I might be getting more money through another route. And then Carol will only accept the forwarded payment once she has sufficient funds to, to reimburse her for what she promises to Dave. So, um, it, it's easy for her to assess or to eventually reject that HTLC because if it doesn't pay her enough to forward, she would be asked to take a loss and she's not going to do yeah. that. So. She will not do that. So she will, she will, um, she will fill the original uh, HTLC and, and maybe uh, the, the other HTLCs that combined didn't, weren't enough to, to, uh, to, reassemble the complete complete amount that that's sort of like the idea that was what behind mpp was it multi-part payment or one it's, of the amp yeah, yeah so i've on my 
website, I've made a post of all the different ideas around uh, uh, payment, about multi-part payment. And I think this resembles uh, Link MPP. So there's um, the incentive for Carol is uh, uh, economic ex uh, incentive to wait for, for uh, uh, the different payment parts. Okay, now pointy question. Is that a new DOS vector, how I can make Carol wait longer and then just never deliver? Um, yes, I think this would be able, yeah, yeah, I think you could make Carol wait longer. Well, she, it depends on how you set up the, the details of this, of this proposal. Uh, and I think there are other ways of, of, uh, uh, jamming uh, that might be easier to achieve, but yes, I, I agree with you that it might be a way of of uh, making Carol wait. I I actually don't think that's a new DOS factor. I think uh, when Bob forwards the payment through the alternative route, uh, both directly to Carol and through parts of it through an alternative route, Bob's just going to use the same uh, CLTV delta on the payment and the CLC delta defines the uh, point in which the HTLC would need to be dropped on chain uh, if there were a problem. And I think that as long as the CLTV delta stays the same for all of the payments, there's no fundamental new DOS factor here. Uh, we're just back to regular channel jamming. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything new there. Okay, thanks. <laughs> In this example that we've walked through with Alice and Bob and Carol and Dave, who would need to be supporting, uh, have this PSS plugin or, or compatible software in order to facilitate yeah. what we spoke about here? Bob and Carol in this example. So both channel partners will need to support a PSS. Um, but they can do so without anybody knowing. And that's for me, for my research uh, purposes that was what's interesting about it so because now the attacker in this scenario Alice um, doesn't know whether they support PSS so, so she is unaware of uh, maybe the payment taking a different route than uh, than expected yeah that's really cool because um, obviously if a node does not have sufficient balance on uh, the route that, that the sender picked, they can locally correct for that. So that might yeah. actually help make more payment attempts go through more quickly, uh, even though you sort of need to first establish another route, which of course might have its own latency uh, increase. Correct. That's that's exactly right. And that's why it, that, that's why it resembles a little bit the proposal of, of René Picard. Uh, just-in-time routing, but whereas just-in-time routing requires an alternative uh, uh, payment that does a kind of very fast rebalancing before you accept to forward the, uh, the payment. Um, in my proposal, um, the rebalancing and, <laughs> and the actual payment itself are combined into one uh, mix. Right. If I recall correctly, just in time uh, routing would be you find some sort of le uh, small cycle 
that yeah. enables you to uh, increase your balance on the channel that you're trying to route through by sending a round trip payment to yourself through that cycle. And that would enable you to forward. And you would, of course, only do that if you earn enough fees to pay for the cycle yeah. payment yourself. Exactly. And that's pretty, that would be the same here. But the difference is that it's not a round trip payment. It doesn't cycle back to you. You can forego on the last leg of the round trip. Uh, so you don't have, so in a, in a cycle, you, you would go from Bob to some intermediary note to Carol and then back to Bob. And that last leg of that journey isn't needed because you just know that, that Carol will reassemble the separate parts of the payment. And that also makes it from a fee perspective uh, more uh, easier to find, uh, probably easier to find something that's uh, <coughs> worthwhile doing because you don't have to pay for the, for the last lack of the, of the round trip. That's great. That's really cool. Hi, can you, can you speak a little bit to the, um, how it could be part of a, a mitigation against channel jamming attacks? Yes. So that's actually, that was my, my uh, incentive for, for making this. And I, uh, my research, I like to do research on topics that are possible within Lightning Network today without too much of uh, a change to the protocol. So that's why I wanted to prove that it was possible. Um, and that's why I built this um, this uh, plugin for, for Core Lightning. Um, but I can see it as a mitigation for a balanced discovery attack because from the, it, without PSS, um, uh, an attacker has certainty that uh, his payment will take a certain route, so he can target, like I said, a specific channel. <laughs> and um, one thing that we, in earlier papers, uh, didn't take to, into account was parallel channels. So that makes it a little bit different because with parallel channels, uh, even without PSS, if, an, if two nodes have multiple channels between them. Um, the forwarding node is free to choose um, whichever parallel channel he wants to um, because the onion doesn't uh, prescribe which channel, if you have multiple, you should use. Um, and there's an excellent paper on that by uh, Alex Biryukov uh, and Gleb Naumenko and Sergei Tigomirov, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and they made they said oh they, they made a geometrical model for finding the balance by using the balance discovery attack even in the case of uh, um, uh, parallel channels. And um, what I did is uh, using that uh, geometrical model to um, what what the geometrical model does is it represents each capacity each dimension of that uh, it, it, it works with a hypercube so a multi-dimensional cube where each dimension of the cube represents the capacity of a channel and i used that same model and made a hypercube where each dimension of that cube is represented by the capacity of a possible route so not 
it can be a, a, a single hop route or multi hop route, but um, each dimension of that hypercube is represented. So that hypercube is the possible result space of all possible balances before you before the attacker starts. And now by doing a balance discovery attack, um, you make that hypercube smaller, um, and you can shrink it to a single point in the case of a single channel. And, um, and when you have multiple parallel channels without PSS, you can shrink it to uh, a permutation of multiple points. Um, but now with PSS, <coughs> that shrinking becomes way more complex. Um, I won't go into the details, but you get um, uh, the, the computational complexity uh, becomes uh, way bigger um, to just uh, determine what the possible balances are of the possible routes that you are uh, pro probing. And that's even considering that you know which possible routes there are, which is something that you don't know because you, you have not... Uh, um, you don't know that information because you don't know for sure whether a payment is split up or not. So, um, right. So basically, um, in the paper that you describe, I, I think I'm familiar. Uh, what you do is you basically hold the, the balance on all channels from even both sides. And that way you can start excluding other channels that you know about until you can measure one specific channel because it's the only degree of freedom. And with your proposed PSS, any potential route between Bob and Carol, even via other hops or multiple other hops, yeah. becomes another dimension in your hypercube that they also have to freeze in order to measure. Correct. So your hypercube becomes way bigger, but also the information you get from a, an attack gives you um, um, less shrinking power, so to speak. So the, the hypercube becomes not uh, becomes smaller by a, a smaller amount than without PSS. So you, you're in the end of a uh, <clears throat> in the end of a balance discovery attack. You are left with a result space that is way bigger than without PSS. Okay, I want to uh, mouth off a little bit here, but my impression is between this PSS approach, the um, propensity of multiple implementations to only allow, um, like in, to, to not update the routable balance to exact amounts of what is available, but to round it down slightly now and then with the proposed upcoming change of advance fees and um, like local reputation, I think that balance discovery attacks are going to be really hard and expensive in the future. I uh, I agree. So so that, that that's that's true, uh, and that's something I didn't take into account because it, because it's not not part of the protocol right now, uh, as far as I'm aware. One question before we wrap up, um, maybe slightly off topic, but I'm always curious about how different researchers come to the Bitcoin and Lightning ecosystem um, to want to spend their, their time doing research here. Um, Merch and the folks at Chaincode have a Bitcoin 
research day coming up later in October. And I'm curious, Heis, how did you come across uh, Lightning and, and Bitcoin and, and become interested in that from a researcher perspective? Um, yeah, well, it's a, it's a bit of a personal story, um, I guess, uh, but um, six, almost seven years ago, I've, I've, been in, I've been working in IT for as long as I remember, uh, but over 20 years already. And um, seven years ago, I moved to Malaysia to Kuala Lumpur <coughs> and that allowed me to um, uh, be and that was because my wife was working there as a, as a, a professor at a university there uh, and living there I <coughs> got the opportunity to do a PhD um, and I never uh, studied some, I, I mean, I had a master, but not in something related to IT. So um, I thought maybe I can fill in that void now by doing a, a PhD. So, um, and I was into Bitcoin already, and I was part of the Bitcoin meetup scene in Kuala Lumpur. And I saw a presentation, I think in, must be... Beginning of 2018, I think, about Lightning Network. And that really triggered me. And I thought, I want to do my PhD research on Lightning Network. And uh, privacy and security is something that's close to my heart. So that was the combination. Uh, so I found a, prof a local university and a professor that wanted to supervise me and uh, started researching it. Excellent. So inspirational lightning presentation sort of was the, the final yes. gateway into wanting to spend time on it. Yeah, like, a, a, and it was the, the somebody on a whiteboard trying to explain HDLCs to an audience of 10 or something. And obviously, um, uh, losing the plot uh, in the beginning of 2018 about how HELCs actually work. So it was it was like this interactive, fun presentations where we all joined together trying to understand something uh, like like HELCs. Ice, thanks for joining us. the The rest of the newsletter is all lightning related stuff. If you would like to stick around and and comment on some of this, otherwise, if you need to go, we understand. I'll stay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next news item from the newsletter is pooled liquidity for Lightning Network. And this is a post by Z-Man, who we've referenced already in this discussion, who posted to the Lightning Dev mailing list a suggestion for what he calls side pools, which is a technique for groups of Lightning nodes to pool funds into an off-chain contract that would allow for rebalancing of channels between those nodes off-chain. Uh, Dave... I think you might be the one who understands this topic the most. Would you uh, expound on that? And is that even a correct summary? <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a correct summary as far as I know. Again, this is Zeman's uh, research. He's unfortunately not able here to be with us today. Um, so I'm going to give him my best shot. Um, so in Lightning, uh, we have this kind of liquidity problem. Um, if 
Alice and Bob have a channel together and they want to forward payments. They want to make money by forwarding payments for other people. Um, some of those payments are going to arrive at Alice's node and she's going to forward them to Bob. But when she does that, her balance in the channel goes down and Bob's balance in the channel increases. Um, and payments can go the other direction, of course. Uh, that would lower Bob's balance and increase Alice's balance in the channel. But in almost no channels are the payment flows uh, symmetrical. In most cases, uh, most of the money is going to be going in one direction or the other. And when that happens, let's say it goes from Alice to Bob, then Alice eventually runs out of the ability to have funds in the channel to forward additional payments. So when that next payment arrives, Alice can't forward. She doesn't have the funds to trustlessly commit to giving to Bob. Uh, and she has to reject the payment. And that's bad for the person who sends the payment. It's bad for Lightning in general. And it's also bad for Alice and Bob. They've committed funds to this channel. They've made a capital investment. And now they can't serve the market. There's obviously demand but they can't serve the market. Um, and Z-Man, if you look across his research across years, he's really worked on this problem a lot. He's spent a significant amount of time. Um, he's written software for it. Uh, the uh, popular uh, Core Lightning boss, CL boss, um, is something he wrote. I think uh, it's currently being, currently being maintained by other people, but uh, Z-Man started that. Uh, he's had a lot of ideas about this, and this is a new one. Um, I think he is really keen on it. So again, I'm going to try to do my best job to describe it. Um, with this problem, uh, what Z-Man is trying to do is trying to find kind of a minimal fix to the network. We don't want to change how the network works right now. If we can change the network, that's great, but changing the network is hard. So Z-Man's idea is for a bunch of forwarding nodes, so Alice and Bob and Carol and Dan and whoever else, um, who are people who are committed to forwarding funds, um, they're all going to get together and they're going to open what he calls a side pool. It's a multi-party state contract. It's kind of like Lightning, but uh, what Z-Man imagines is it's only going to be used maybe once or twice a day. Uh, it's going to have one big operation once or twice a day between these people who are going to rebalance their funds uh, in this uh, multi-party contract. Um, so what happens is Alice is out of funds in her channel with Bob. Um, but Alice and Bob and Carol uh, are also in a side pool. Um, so Alice, uh, so, so Carol agrees to uh, give some funds to Alice in the, in the uh, side pool. Oh gosh, this is hard to do in my head, sorry. Um, <clears throat> What we want is for money in the channel between Alice and Bob to flow back from Bob to Alice. So Carol sends money to Bob to Alice. Um, part of that operation occurs in the uh, side pool, um, and part of the operation occurs in the channels uh, between Alice and Bob. And it ends up equaling this stuff out. And then now Alice has a restored balance in this channel. More payments can flow through again. Um, the side pool, the idea there is to get as many of these forwarding users into it as possible um, because there's more edges for them right there 
to make to find opportunities to move funds around. It's only going to occur once or twice a day because the more frequently it occurs, uh, at least according to Z-Man, the greater the chance there's going to be some sort of failure that's going to require dropping the channel on chain. Uh, so we need to drop channels on chain if one of the parties becomes unavailable for an extended period of time um, in order to keep it trustless. Um, in a standard channel, you know, that's that's a risk that you expect. Um, and in a peer swap with a whole bunch of people involved, we want to minimize the risk of that happening. Uh, because if you have to drop the channel on chain, it's a lot of, it's a big transaction you have to use or a big set of transactions you have to use. Um, one of the challenges here for this side pool idea is a multi-party state contract or something. Oh, look, Merch has a question. Merch, you go ahead first. No, I, w I was going to follow up, uh, but one of the parts that I wanted to follow up with is already relevant. So basically, it sounds to me like there is just a reservoir of staged funds. They're not really in a channel per se, but rather like just a shared balance that has sort of a single commitment transaction that pays all of the stagers out at once and they use these staged funds not like a lightning channel but rather just as a reservoir to uh, rebalance the other channels that exist between the participants of the side pool so sort of like a a water reservoir on top of the hill that they only engage when whenever they want to to well increase the electricity output in a hydro <laughs> well that okay this does this metaphor is going too far but like staged funds that are not liquid except for once in a day but they can be used to rebalance channels uh, that's that's correct they they're only going to be used in in z-man's idea once or twice a day so in order to do the rebalancing there needs to be an htlc but it could be an htlc involving multiple parts so it could be one big htlc for the entire channel involving you know dozens or potentially even hundreds of different forwarding nodes um and as long as everybody comes online and stays online for this one brief period every day, that HTLC gets resolved uh, off-chain. And you know we only need to put that channel, that, that reserve, reservoir channel, uh, using Merch's term, um, we only need to use that you know, very rarely. We only need to update it on-chain very rarely. Um, and I think there was something more I was going to say, but I can't remember. So I don't know if anybody has questions. Yeah. Uh, so the obvious um, related idea seems to be channel factories, right? So if I may take a stab at it, uh, a channel factory is different in the sense that you explicitly use the larger set of funds to craft uh, virtual channels that live inside of the channel factory. So you get sort of a similar mechanism, but all of the participants of the channel factory uh, need to be online more frequently for the um, subsets, the pairs inside of the channel factories to, to update their virtual channels. Here, instead, the, the funds are separate a little more and there's an explicit um, time frame at which they're online once to check in with each other per day. 
and they can still use the funds to rebalance channels, but the channels are not part of the reservoir. They're rather separate and you just interact with them to to rebalance and then the reservoir is basically dormant again until next day. Whereas in the channel factory, basically all participants are expected to be online 24 seven. Is that roughly your understanding too? That's, we have a bunch of channel factory designs right now. And so there's different ones optimized for different things. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there's the original design by, uh, uh, Decker and Wadenhofer, I think is his name. And uh, then there's you know, the ideas by John Law and there's other ideas out there. And there's also ideas for how to, you know, who gets involved in these channel in these channel factories. Is it a bunch of everyday users who are not going to forward payments? Are they going to be used by a bunch of forwarding nodes to create a bunch of edges on the network to make paths you know, shorter. Um, there's a lot of variation there in the design of channels and how channels will be used. So I don't want to commit to a blanket statement that this is, you know, uh, very different than that. Um, but again, for for Z-Man, he's trying to build something that is very easy to bolt onto the existing network where channel factories are really hard to do. Um, to get right, it's a big engineering investment to do channel factories. And when it, uh, oh, oh, so the, one of the concerns I had with the merchant statement was that everybody needs to be in a channel factory, needs to be online all the time, very frequently. And I don't think that's true in a lot of these channel factory designs. In a lot of the designs, we expect them to be used by casual users who are only going to be online occasionally. You know, uh, so the channel factory might be between an LSP, uh, one LSP, and a thousand users, uh, and those thousand users are not going to be online all the time with the LSP probably well. Um, but that brings us back to the challenge of the side pool, which is the multi-party uh, state contract that we need. We don't have that mechanism in Bitcoin and Lightning Network right now. We have ideas for that, but nobody has, to the best of my knowledge, uh, implemented that and really brought it to a level of deployment. Um, and so Z-Man, in a follow-up post to the one we're discussing about, um, he seems to have settled on an idea that was originally introduced under the name Duplex Payment Channels by uh, Christian Decker and I don't, Roger Bodenhofer, I think that's his name. Um, and that was originally introduced around the same time that uh, the uh, construct that we use in Lightning Network was first introduced, so 2015, I guess. And uh, it was introduced before we had uh, SegWit and before we even had relative lock times. So Z-Man has been going through and updating this construct uh, for modern times. Um, and what it gives him is a pretty simple way to have many parties involved in a single payment channel-like construction that can handle HTLCs, um, but that has a limited use lifetime. That's one of the, the features here of duplex payment channels is that they use uh, de-incrementing time locks. So time locks that get shorter and shorter and shorter over time. Uh, so it has a fixed use lifetime. Um, 
Z-Man sent me some back of the napkin calculations, and I don't recall exactly the word, but I think it was about one year of use if they do two rebalance operations a year with same parameters. So that's pretty good on on-chain on size if it's able to all be handled off-chain and resolved cooperatively on-chain. I'm rambling. I hope you guys have questions. No, you're doing great. Um... I I just had two small comments. Um, I think that the Channel Factory paper came out of Konrad Burchardt's uh, master thesis. He was working with Christian Decker while Christian was doing his PhD, and the duplex micropayment channels was subject of uh, uh, Christian Decker's PhD with Roger Waltenhofer. So, uh, like, yes, you you put all that together right, but uh, there was another person involved. Um, I saw in one of the emails of Seaman, he seemed to suggest that if you only want to wait up to eight days for a channel to be, sorry, for a side pool to be resolved unilaterally in case of people um, not being available, he mentioned something of... Um, three months, I think, in the second email. I, if you could do it for a year, I'm sure that this would be a, an attractive proposal, but that would probably go hand-in-hand hand with a longer timeout in case of people becoming unavailable. But even that might be fine. I mean, this is just some funds staged and sort of tied up anyway as a reservoir to rebalance channels, so... If it's sitting there for a while, probably it's not funds that people urgently use to make on-chain payments in the first place. Dave, question for you. How would you contrast coin pools versus a multi-party state contract? How should someone think about that? Uh, the way I think of coin pools is as being for on-chain payments. Um, so you have a, a bunch of users who share ownership of a UTXO in a trustless way. Um, and in order to update the balance of a coin pool trustlessly, I don't think they can do that off-chain. I think they have to do that on-chain. But I could be missing something. Um, whereas, again, the, the side pool construct we're looking for here, the multi-party stake channel, um, it's about making an on-chain commitment. So they are sharing uh, a pool, uh, a UTXO, uh, but it's designed specifically for making a bunch of off-chain updates and then eventually settling on-chain. Um, however, they are related. It's, it's a very clear relationship between coin pools and channel factories and these side pools. They're all kind of you know, the same thing, but with different objectives, I think. Heis? I see a comment by Heis. Uh, yes. Uh, I was wondering, uh, Merch, in your, and maybe I'm misunderstanding it now, but uh, in your explanation just now, you said that... Um, you use coins for those side pools that you have lying around anyway. You wouldn't be doing anything with it anyway. Um, and I'm rephrasing a bit. Um, but shouldn't also the opportunity cost of having money in a side pool be taken, taken into account here? I mean, you, it, it would be better to, I mean, you, you don't earn any money with it at, if it's in the side pool. 
I think that's a fair point. Um, I guess there would be an opportunity cost, of course, for tying up your money in this reservoir, in the side pool. But on the other hand, it would also make your regular channels that you have already deployed probably earn more fees. So there would be some sort of balance between having tied up your funds, but them being more useful because they can go rebalance many of your channels instead of just, say, produce another parallel channel between a uh, peer that uh, and you that you already had a channel with, right? Where it would only be deployed as capital that that can serve that route. Uh, the reservoir funds they can be deployed daily to rebalance a bunch of other channels. So if you had, for example, multiple different channels that are your most frequently used, but they are sort of imbalanced in one direction you would be able to refresh them more often, earn more fees there, but tie up for funds in the reservoir. Yeah. Um, I, sorry. Yeah, let's let's wrap up that thread. I had another idea of what I wanted to approach after. I, I just wanted to note that uh, I accidentally replied to Z-Man without CCing the mailing list, and we had a rather extended conversation about exactly this. Um, I was critical of this compared to other rebalancing mechanisms and other channel designs on the capital efficiency level. Um, so I think that's something that's still, you know, to a certain level needs to be worked out. However, I think a really big advantage of this design is that it is completely separate from the rest of Lightning Network. It doesn't require any changes to Lightning. And as Lightning becomes you know, uh, more widely used and more widely deployed, it's getting harder and harder to change. Um, and so a design like this that can just be, you know, deployed separately from the network that requires no changes to the network um, is hopefully pretty simple to do, although I'm sure Z-Man could encounter problems that none of us anticipated. That's just really great that it's something that can be used now, and then maybe we can find a more optimal solution in the long term. Yeah, that brings me also to the final comment that I wanted to make in this regard. So um, I think that a lot of uh, designs that compete with this make assumptions such as um, any prevout becoming available and us getting the LN symmetry um, channel update mechanism. But uh, the nice advantage of the duplex micropayment channels by Decker and Wattenhofer is it uh, just ratchets, ratchets down the state. So by decrementing the timeout of the channel, you um, explicitly make a uh, updated state become valid on chain earlier than prior states of the channel. So you, you lock in which uh, state can be broadcast and confirmed on the network first. And I'm I assume that it would be much easier to adapt this mechanism to a multi-party world from a two-player world, where, uh, as compared to the Ellen penalty mechanism, which explicitly relies on this um, binary asymmetry, where you need to be able to know that the other party cheated in order to punish that other party specifically, uh, and with the ratchet mechanism, it just ratchets down and whoever 
um, broadcasts an old state while they can't before you can broadcast a newer state. Great discussion, everyone. I think in the interest of time, uh, we should move on. We'll move to the releases and release candidates section. We have one this week, LND 0.17.0 beta being released. And I know one of the things that people are excited about with this release is the support for taproot channels, specifically simple taproot channels, which have a couple different benefits, uh, privacy benefits in that channel open and channel closing transactions now can look like regular single SIG Bitcoin transactions, uh, using, using Schnorr signatures and MuSIG2 to allow for fee savings from a block space perspective. Um, but one thing that, the, that they've noticed noted in their blog post um, and is something that's not possible right now is that right now the Lightning Gossip Protocol doesn't support gossiping about uh, Taproot Lightning channels. And in newsletter 261, we covered the LN Summit Notes topic where ideas about updated gossip protocols were being discussed, including a bunch of 1.5, 1.75, I think 2.0 versions of gossip. And it looks like the current direction Lightning developers are taking is this one uh, version 1.75 gossip, which could allow, which would allow for um, gossiping of these types of taproot channels. Um, there's a couple other things I'll jump into, but I, I wanted to give an opportunity for either Merch or Dave or Heist to comment on Taproot channels before we note some of these other things. Thumbs up. Okay, great. I mean, we've we've talked a bunch about this already, and I would like to refer back again. Uh, we had um, El Muton and Oliver Guga on the Chaincode podcast to talk about simple taproot channels a while back. So if you really want to know more about simple taproot channel, channels, that was recorded around uh, Lightning Summit. So it's a, a few months old, but I think you you'll get more out of listening to that podcast than what we can cover here. Additionally, with this specific LND release, we spoke with Roast Beef in number 268 of our podcast, if you want to hear his thoughts on this release. Two other things that I wanted to note that we also noted in the newsletter is performance improvements for users of the Neutrino backend, which is LND's support for BIP 157 and 158 compact block filters. And finally, LND made some improvements to the memory usage of their Watchtower client, as well as some reliability improvements to their Watchtower setup as well. Moving on to notable code and documentation changes, we have three. Actually, I've noticed now that the entire newsletter is, is lightning this week. Uh, so we have three lightning-related pull requests that we covered. The first one is Eclair 2756. We've covered PRs related to Eclair's splicing functionality over the last many months, including the release of Async's Phoenix wallet that supported splicing and got a lot of uh, notoriety in the community. And that was in newsletter 260. But we actually spoke with TBAST about Phoenix in podcast 259 and talked about splicing there. This PR this week that we covered adds monitoring related to splicing operations in Eclair. 
Uh, Eclair has already had monitoring built in. It uses a monitoring tool called Kamon, I believe is the pronunciation, and has some cool Grafana dashboards to display the collected metrics. And this particular PR adds monitoring uh, of splicing, including three distinct types of channel splices, splice in, splice out, and splice CPFP. Merch, I know you did the, the write-up for this item for the newsletter. Um, I have a question. What is splice CPFP? Well, so splice in and splice out are pretty obvious. You use the channel balance to either increase the channel balance on basis of another input and uh, funding output uh, to make yeah a bigger channel, or a splice out is you split off some of the funds to pay someone out of band. Splice CPFP is if you reduce the channel balance in order to bump a previous splice. So if you, for example, had a, let's say Alice and Bob had a channel, Alice, Alice paid Carol out of band from the channel balance, so they did a splice out. They can continue to immediately use the channel because obviously the funds are still under the control of the shared two of two output script. But now let's say the someone like Binance posted a bunch of consolidation transactions at 15 times the necessary fee rate and her splice out isn't going through. So now she um, asks um, Bob to do a splice out, uh, splice out again, but she doesn't pay anyone. She just reduces the channel balance in order to bump the previous splice out. And so the, the third type of splice here is basically burn some fees to um, speed up the prior settlement of the channel operation. Oh, and uh, they also track the originator of the splice operation. So there's really six different statistics here. Um, so splice in and splice out, either initiated from local or from remote and uh, splice uh, CPFP also initialized, uh, initiated from remote or local. Next PR this week is LDK2486. It adds the ability for LDK users to fund multiple channels in a single transaction, which they call um, batch funding. So you have one transaction and multiple channels. Um, looking into the discussion on this PR, much of the consideration around the PR was related to ensuring that the channels being opened in the transaction either all open or all close or fail. And they've, act, they've added a bunch of additional state data and LDK's internals to keep track of these different conditions in an attempt to avoid certain race, race conditions that could occur, which obviously... Um, would be different than just a single transaction opening a single channel and being able to keep track of all that. Um, so if you're curious, jump into LDK 2486. Dave or I'm not sure if you have a comment on that. All right. Final PR for this week. LDK 2609 allows requesting the descriptors used for receiving payments in past transactions. When I see the word descriptor, I always want to deferred to Merch. So Merch, do you want to talk about LDK's descriptor requesting feature? Um, so I looked at this a little bit and from what I understand, um, basically when you recover LDK or um, 
you don't always keep track of your past transactions outputs if they're already spent ldk might forget them in some instances or when you um i guess when you switch um from a backup to a new node or or whatever and this will allow you to basically rediscover the history of your lightning node uh, you um you rescan the past transactions and you determine which of the outputs were spendable by you and get the descriptor from that. And that's at least what a cursory glance at the discussion on the PR seemed to indicate. Uh, I'm, I'm open to not having completely understood that one, though. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, there was an issue on the LDK repository to be able to regenerate spendable outputs and the motivation was we require users to store these but users have occasionally not done so and so regenerating them should be pretty doable so i guess you were supposed to in theory have some of this backed up yourself but if you didn't now there's the ability to regenerate that given the historical transaction data yeah, uh, so I had one comment. You said the whole newsletter was about Lightning, but we actually had some really exciting news this week in uh, Bitcoin Core, too. Two of our priority projects got merged uh, this week, so I'm sure that they are going to be featured in the next newsletter. I assume they just missed the editorial deadline uh, this week, so stay tuned for next week. Thanks to Heist for joining us, Dave Harding, Merch, my co-host as always, and thank you all for taking the time to listen to us talk about lightning technology this week. Cheers. Hear you soon.